Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that you've gotten us through this first week of college, of winter quarter. And we thank you that uh, you are with us this morning as we deliberate about your word. Bless us this morning as we study uh, the wrath of God. We pray that your spirit will guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um I think, I don't know if I have extra copies, but I think I do, actually. Uh, Rosalie, you want to have one? And uh, if you keep coming, you get a notebook. (laughs) (laughs) I want to work it into my schedule. (laughs) Sounds like you have some competition somewhere. Which document is it? It's God's Wrath in the Bible. Actually, it's just one document. So here... Okay, so it's God's wrath in the Bible, and we pretty much, I pretty much didn't go on this document, I think, last time. What we did is I gave you kind of an overview of where we're headed to to kind of get to the end of the story before we start at the beginning, because the beginning is becomes very daunting as we move through the story. There are some dark chapters when we look at God's wrath in the Bible. So what we will do is... Uh, begin today with the texts that are the easiest to deal with. And that is God's wrath as giving people the results of their choice or hiding his face. And I, I mentioned this last time as a recap of last time. Why don't we do that first so that you can have in mind, because it's been a month or more since we did this. Um, Genesis does not mention God being angry once, not with the flood, not with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the closest you get to it are two references, one in the Noah story where um, Noah seems to appease God's uh, wrath, but God is not mentioned as angry there. Um, and and you, it, it really is a matter of interpretation, and the bias of the person really pretty much governs the interpretation made. The other place is is Aaron, the Aaron Onan story, uh, where God is displeased with them. Uh, that's not really the same as anger. Uh, so, why would Genesis not mention divine anger? And in my canonical reading of the Bible, which uh, I believe that the be- theological problems are best solved by looking at the Bible in terms of canon. In the canonical reading of the Bible, the priority is given to God not being angry. The preferred voice, as I like to refer to the minor voice of the Old Testament, is God not being angry. So then, uh, taking a a flying leap then over the Old Testament into the New Testament, uh, well, let me back up a bit. We pointed out last time that in Exodus... And the, the first time canonically that God's anger is mentioned is with Moses at the burning bush. And then God, when God gets angry, he gives Moses what he wants. He gives Moses Aaron. Aaron Moses wants someone to go instead of him. God gives him Aaron. And, and so God gives Moses what he wants when he's angry. And that, that sets the stage for a very definitive text in Romans that we looked at also, Romans 1. Uh, 18, 24, 26, and 28, 
where we note that when God gets angry there, it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, meaning that we now are going to know what that wrath is. It says three times, God gave them up. God gave them up. So what we're going to be doing this morning is looking at the easy texts, the texts that support Romans. And I think it's important to start with with what helps us before we dive into what is difficult. Um, so why don't we, um, we've already looked at Exodus 4.14 last time. Let us go to Numbers 11.10. Uh, Numbers 11 is about the people getting um, the riffraff, <laughs> is the way my version puts it. Verse 4, among them had a strong craving. And they they whine and complain about this uh, manna that they're eating. And so verse 10, Moses heard the people crying throughout their clans, each of these tents entrance. I have, in my version, the Lord was outraged. And Moses was upset. And then Moses complains to God. So everybody's complaining here. And fi- so finally... Moses, God first solves Moses' problems so that he can solve the people's problems, so to speak. And then he says, verse 18, To the people you will say, Make yourselves holy for tomorrow, then you will eat meat, for you have cried in the Lord's hearing, who will give us meat to eat. It was better for us in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat, and you will eat. You won't eat for just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but for a whole month. Until it comes out of your nostrils and nauseates you, you've rejected the Lord who's been with you and have, you have cried before him saying, why did we leave Egypt? So he gives them what they want, right? He gives them the meat they want. Now, um, it says here that there was a play that the people got sick and died. I think it was, um, so the quail comes in in verse 30 from the sea and they gather. It says, while the meat was still between their teeth, probably towards the end of the 30 days, right? And not yet consumed, the Lord's anger blazed against the people. The Lord struck the people with a very great punishment. What do you think really happened? They got sick of eating this meat. And and what what uh, Bruce Feiler points out in his book, Walking the Bible, where he, he took a tour of the Old Testament, walking from place to place, and and uh, he visited the Sinai Peninsula where the story took place. He he claims that the quail that uh, lives in that area that comes in occasionally can carry a disease, a very bad disease. And and so they land uh, there possibly because they're not feeling well, maybe. So the people had quail to eat, and it was deadly quail for some of them. Probably the the weaker ones died, and the stronger ones were able to surmount the problem. But so so this is God's wrath at work. He's outraged. He sends what they want, and the consequences are are bad. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It, it sounds almost kind of spiteful of God because he's like, "All right, you want quail? I'll give you quail," and he sends him like sick sick quail. So. But but you're, are you saying that it's more like the only quail they could have ever gotten were, were these sick quail? So it isn't that would feed enough. People. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, it's not arbitrary. It's like okay, you've walked beyond my protection. I'm going to let 
you have the consequences. Okay, so that takes care of Numbers 11, 10, and 33. So let's go to um, Numbers 12, 9. And, and this, is, this is very helpful, too. This is the story of, uh, this is the story of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses, Moses is the youngest brother, right? Miriam's the oldest, Aaron's next. And in tradition, ancient Near Eastern tradition, Asian tradition to this day, the oldest gets, is, is prime, has prior, uh, ability and, and function as a leader in the family. So they complain about all this, uh, leadership stuff that Moses has with, with the people. And they say, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he also not spoken through us? And so they, they want equality with Moses. So, God calls them out to the tent of meaning. He explains that Miriam and Miriam is a prophet. Aaron is a priest. Um, and he explains apparently Miriam is the one who starts this because of her ability to prophesy. She thinks of herself as also hearing God speak to her and therefore she's on par with Moses. But God says, no, Moses is above a prophet because he sees everything that's in my house. He, Moses actually has seen God's glory. He has been in God's immediate presence. So God basically says, you shouldn't criticize my servant Moses. So then verse 10, when the cloud, oh, in verse 9 says, the Lord's anger blazed against them and they went back. What does that mean? We don't know what happened, right? Um, it seems that maybe God intensified his glory, which is the glory of his love. And they couldn't bear to be in that presence, and so they moved back. But anyway, what happens next is that the cloud goes away from the tent. God leaves. So first he, he lets them know his displeasure, and then he leaves. And the result is that Miriam suddenly becomes a leper. So it, 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 it seems to me that God's anger really ultimately is his moving away, or actually symbolic them moving away from him. And I think the reality is uh, that we leave him, we leave his protection, and then we suffer the consequences of, the, of not having his protection. And I, I think we don't realize how much we're dependent on God for protection, that if he didn't protect us, uh, it would be very serious. We would, we would suffer ten times more, and maybe even more than that, than we do now. Any questions or observations about this passage uh, before we move on? So the leprosy, are you saying, is what would have happened to Miriam without God? Yeah. Okay, so it's not a punishment. It's not, it's not directly caused by God. Uh, pun- punishment is a very broad term. You can use it to mean natural consequences. Uh, you can use it to mean direct uh, cause. We tend to think of it as direct cause. But uh, I believe the way s- some inspired writers use it, it's, it's more the consequences 
of uh, forfeiting God's protection. Okay, let's go to Numbers 32.10. You notice that Numbers has references to God's wrath (laughs) more than any other books of Torah. Um, So Numbers 32 and... um, No, it's Numbers 14. This is when they came to Kadesh Barnea on the borders of the of the of Canaan, the Promised Land, and the people are are weeping. The spies have come back with a bad report that everything is just terribly frightening. The people are are bigger than we are. They are not going to be able to. Um, we are not going to be able to fight our way in. And of course, the people are thinking they have to fight, right? Uh, so Moses and Aaron, they, they want to pick a leader to go back to Egypt because they think that Moses is responsible. So Moses and Aaron fall on their faces, and Joshua keeps pleading with them. And then God's glory appears in, in chapter 10, uh, part B, in the meeting to all the Israelites. And he says to Moses, How long will these people disrespect me? And how long will he doubt me after all the signs that I performed among them? I'll strike them down with a plague and disown them. Then I will make you into a great nation stronger than they. What is God saying here? This is, this is a second time he's done this. Back in Exodus, when, when the people worshiped the golden calf, you remember he said, tells Moses, step aside, let me be angry so that I can destroy these people. Is God really intending to destroy them? And there, as in now, Moses doesn't take very many words to convince God that he shouldn't do that. As though God can't see, he's so angry, he can't see straight, and he can't see that this is not a wise move to make. Uh, this is very human, what I would call anthropomorphic language. Uh, very human language portraying God as as something like, human beings respond to situations. And I believe that God is responding that way himself. And I would like to propose to you that these scenes, both here in Exodus, are parody scenes of an angry God motif. They're parody. That is, God is staging himself as angry to, as as a way of saying, this is not how my anger works. This is how... Uh, an angry God normally functions, but this is not how. And he listens to Moses each time. Verse 17 is very key. Now let my master's power be great as you declared when you said, the Lord is very patient and absolutely loyal, forgiving wrongs and disloyalty, yet he doesn't forego all punishment, disciplining the children and the grand- great-grandchildren for their ancestors' wrongs. Please forgive the wrongs of these people because of your absolute loyalty. Moses is saying, your power is not killing people. Your power is forgiving people. That's what he learned in Exodus. He reiterates it here. He's actually quoting what God says when he reveals himself to Moses in Exodus. So the Lord says, I will forgive as you requested. So, God's, God in his anger remembers mercy, right? Then he says, But as I live and as the Lord's glory fills the entire earth, none of the men who saw my glory and all the signs I did in Egypt and in the desert but tested me these ten times and haven't listened to my voice will see the land I promised to their ancestors. What is God saying here? 
What did they want? After the spies came back, what did the people want? What did they decide? That's uh, back in verse 3 and 4. Sorry, in verse 10, um, then the congregation said to stone them with stones. And I think that's in response to the people. Right. But look at, look at verses 3 and 4. Back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. They don't want to go into the promised land. So God says you won't. He doesn't say I won't let you. It's just you won't. You won't go. I honor that request back into the wilderness. And then the next generation will be ready to go in. So it seems to me that, again, God's anger is giving people what they want, what they've chosen. Okay, uh, let's go to 32, verses 13 to 15. And the Lord's anger was kindled, kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord had disappeared. And now you, a brood of sinners, have risen in place of your fathers to increase the Lord's fierce anger against Israel. If you turn away from the follow- from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. Notice, God gets angry, he what? He leaves them alone, he goes away. Yeah, he abandons them. Is that arbitrary? Does God stalk off in a rage? That's how the Babylonians viewed their gods. Cities sinned against them, didn't bring the right sacrifices, so Marduk went and got the Elamites and stalked off to Elam. Is that what's happening here? Who abandons whom? This is getting behind the wording. It's it's so easy to get locked into wording in reading the Bible. Um, But as I understand inspiration... Getting uh, the wording is very human. It's it's our way of picturing God, uh, and we have to get behind that wording in order to understand what's really going on. It seems to me that we abandon Him first, and then He lets us have the choice. Okay, Deuteronomy thirty-two, sixteen to twenty-two. They made Him jealous with strange gods. With abhorrent things they provoked him. They sacrificed to demons, not God, to deities they had never known, to new ones recently arrived, whom your ancestors had not feared. You were, mi- you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and was jealous. He spurned his sons and daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They made me jealous with what is, with what is no God, provoked me with their idols. So I will make them jealous with what is no people, provoke them with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger and burns to the depths of Sheol. It devours the earth in its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. Okay, so so you have this um, sequence here. If you look at verse 15, which I didn't, uh, yeah, we did read 15. They give up on God. Okay, they abandon him. And then they they worship these other gods, sacrifice to demons. By the way, the Bible does see false gods as demons. 
And it says, verse 18, it says, uh, you were unmindful of the rock. Uh, my version has, you deserted the rock that sired you. And so he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what becomes of them. So I'm going to give them up. I'm going to let them go. And what happens? A fire starts burning because of my anger. Because I let them go, a fire starts burning and it starts ruining everything. So it's very metaphorical language. So how how do you read that? Is there is there a way to read that that harmonizes with Romans 1? How does this harmonize with Romans 1? Okay, in 20 we got, I will hide my face from them, I will see what their end will be. And then what follows is is like a huge list of terrible, terrible things that's going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can suppose that the author of this um, applied all the consequences to God's anger because those were the consequences of God leaving them, Mm -hmm, turning mm -hmm, his face away. mm Yeah. And and by the way, this is this is the way scripture does it often. It will stay say it in in a way that we can understand as God abandoning or, or hiding his face or whatever, uh letting people go. And then they will say it in the way that harmonizes with the ancient and eastern perceptions of God where he does everything, he directly. Uh and so I think it's important that we have to choose which canopy we're going to put over the text. Are we going to say, well, the wording that he hides his face is just metaphor and, and we don't have to take it seriously or is, is, and so therefore he, it's, he does all these things directly or should we say he, his hiding his face is important and significant and that comes first and then all these things follow and therefore God's wrath is really giving people up, letting them go. Like it says in Romans. Okay, um, we're not going to read all of these. Uh, I would like to go through these. Um, Judges is very clear on what God's anger is. It's one of the clearest books of the Old Testament, believe it or not. Uh, Judges 2, 12, 14 to 14 says, The people forsook the Lord, and he gave them over to plunderers. Judges 2, 20 the people refuse to drive out the Canaanites, so God refuses to drive out the Canaanites. He lets them have their way. Judges 3.8 says, God sold Israel into the hands of a Mesopotamian king. And, and that word sold as a metaphor, what does that mean? Does, did God get anything paid back to him for selling Israel? Obviously not. It's simply an expression for God handing them over, letting them go. Uh, so this is the terminology of Judges, and it's, it's very clear, really, uh, that the author of Judges saw God as, as letting people go, giving them over uh, to the consequences of their choice. In 1 Kings 14, 15, and 16, the Lord will uproot Israel and scatter it among the nations. He will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam. So this is... Uh, when we, what, what happens uh, if in a marriage one partner chooses a different partner? What happens to the marriage? 
the other partner simply has to let go. And I think that that's the metaphor, the larger metaphor behind a lot of this language in the whole Testament is that Israel is Yahweh's spouse. And when they go to another God, the marriage ends. He can't, he can't keep them. He, God will not force himself on people who choose a different partner. He will not kick that partner out. He will let them have that partner and all that goes with it. Uh, so Second Kings 13.3, the language is the Lord gave them continually into the hand of Hazel, king of Assyria, of Syria. Second uh, Kings 23.36, I will remove and I will cast off this city which I have chosen. Second Chronicles 28.9-11, let's look at that one because this one uh, requires a little more discussion. Second Chronicles 28. Let's look at the, actually go to the beginning and look at the whole chapter. Ahaz becomes king at 20 years of age and rules for 16 years. Uh, he does terrible things. He made images of balls and burned incense in the Ben-Hinnom Valley, which is the valley where they did child sacrifice. He even burned his own sons alive. He sacrificed and, and burned incense at the shrines in every hill. And so, verse 5, The Lord his God handed him over to Aram's king who defeated him and carried off many prisoners, bringing them to Damascus. So, what does God do when he gets angry? Actually, it doesn't say he got angry, does it? It just says he handed them over. He let them go. And Ahaz was also handed over to Israel's king who defeated him with a severe beating. And that simply may mean he lost a lot of his armed forces. In fact, it suggests that uh, they killed 120,000 warriors in the course of a single day because they had abandoned the Lord God. This is now very clear language that they have left God. Then one of the Lord's prophets named Oded lived in Samaria. When the army arrived there, he went to meet them. This is Israel's army that has attacked Judah, okay? When the army arrived there, he went to meet them and said, Don't you see that the Lord God of your ancestors was angry with Judah and and let you defeat them? But look what you've done. Your merciless slaughter of them stinks to high heaven. And now you think you can enslave the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem? What about your own guilt before the Lord your God? Listen to me. Send the captives you took from your relatives because the Lord is furious with you. What's going on here? It shows it wasn't God's will that they were defeated by this group of people because he was, then it says he was angry with those people. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that Israel, because they overstepped their boundaries, the boundaries God intended and and really try to wipe out Judah. Their anger is direct, destructive, and very much the kind that we have been accustomed to thinking of in terms of God's anger. God is God isn't angry with Judah here. It doesn't say that. It simply says that he that they abandoned him, so they had to suffer the consequences of their abandonment. And now God is furious with Judah, for, with Israel for 
really overstepping their boundaries and and going against Judah so mercilessly. So this fury of God, is it a feeling that leads him to wipe people out or is it simply a state of God's agony that where he cannot do anything? He's, he's in a sense somewhat helpless. And he can rebuke them. He can, he can modify the consequences so that they hopefully will turn back to him. But he can't, he, he's not directly the agent of destruction when he's angry. In other words, anger is not tied to a direct causative action. Is that possible? I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm leaning toward Romans 1. And I'm seeing all the places in the Bible that seem to suggest this. Look at 2 Chronicles 36.16. Here the people make fun of God's messengers. They treat God's words with contempt and ridicule his prophets. Until, what does it say? Until what? Until the wrath of the Lord against his people became so great that there was no remedy. The wrath of the Lord became so great that there was no remedy. How does that work? How do you interpret that? I mean, God gets so angry that he says, I can't tolerate them anymore. That doesn't make sense with there's no remedy. My version tries to smooth it out from a very ancient Near Eastern perspective. There was no hope of warding off the Lord's rising anger against his people. <laughs> Hebrew doesn't say that. It's this, there's no remedy. Is there no remedy from God's wrath? And what would that entail? If, if we believe that the primary, and, and again, this is reading scripture, as a, as a canon, as an inspired whole, uh, letting scripture interpret scripture, letting us find keys that unlock scripture. Remember the hermeneutics we've been, uh, emphasizing here. If that is true, then wouldn't it mean that God is forced out of the picture so much that there's nothing he can do? There's no remedy. He can't do anything because he's shut out. The Israelites have rejected him totally. And we have to keep in mind, remember that God's kingdom is not a kingdom of force. So if he's pushed out of the picture, he has to step back. He will not. He will not force himself on people who don't want him. Okay, so when it says there was no remedy, that's saying that it's not on God's part that there is no remedy. It's on the people's part. Like, they've stepped so far out of line this time that they, they can't get themselves back to God. Is that they, the deal? Yeah. They're, they're so, they have rejected him to the point where no matter what he does, they're going to keep rejecting him. There's nothing more he can do. Okay, let's look at a few Psalms. Let's look at Psalm, Psalm 74. And this here parallels anger with abandonment. God, why have you abandoned us forever? Why does your anger smolder at the sheep of your own pasture? This is Hebrew parallelism. 
And in Hebrew parallelism, uh, line A complements line B. If not, line B reiterates line A. So here, why have you abandoned us as parallel to your anger smoldering? So it virtually is implying that anger and abandonment are the same thing. Uh, let's look at um, Psalm 78. And this is a very long psalm, so 58. So they angered God with their many shrines. They angered him with their idols. God heard and became enraged. He rejected Israel utterly. God abandoned the sanctuary at Shiloh, the tent where he had lived with humans. So what does God do when he gets angry? He abandons. Um, but this is not huffing off. This is if we, if we put the mosaic of texts together, it is because they abandoned him in the first place. He's forced out of the picture. The the rest of the the other psalm in anger, his anger kindled. He gave them over to the nations. Same parallelism is manifested in Isaiah fifty four eight. God hides his face in overflowing wrath. In Isaiah 64, God hid his face, leading people to sin. So he hides his face, they sin worse. Why? Because they're already sinning. He's letting them go, letting them do what they want. They sin more. Uh, let's end on Isaiah and Jeremiah 7, 15 to 20. Look at verse 8. This, this whole chapter is, is very instructive. And yet you trust in lies that will only hurt you. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery and perjury, sacrifice to Baal and go to other gods that you do not know, and then come stand before me in this temple that bears my name and say we are safe, only to keep doing all these attestable things? Just go to the sanctuary in Shiloh where I let my name, this is verse 12, Dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done these things, declares the Lord, because you haven't listened when I spoke to you again and again and responded when I called you, I will do to this temple that bears my name on which you rely, the place that I gave you and your ancestors just as I did to Shiloh. He'll destroy it. How did God destroy the temple? He let the Babylonians come. He He stopped protecting them from the nations around them. And even as the Babylonians were coming, and if you read all of Jeremiah, this becomes quite clear. Uh, God says, if you will submit to Nebuchadnezzar and you will pay him tribute, uh, you can stay in the land. And and the temple would not have been destroyed. They refused to listen to Jeremiah. They listened to all the false prophets. They refused to submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes up against the city and God still says, if you will submit to Nebuchadnezzar, I can't save the temple, I can't save the city, but I can save your lives. And they still refuse. And the consequences take place. So this is a very good case. Let's read 15 to 20 now. I will cast you out of my sight just as I cast the rest of of your family, all the people of Israel, of Ephraim, I should say. As for you, don't pray for these people, don't cry or plead for them, and don't intercede with me for them, for I won't listen to you. Can't you see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and Jerusalem, towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women need dough to make sacrificial cakes for the Queen of Heaven. And they offend me all the more, they pour out drink offerings to foreign gods.' 
Am I really the one they are offending, declares the Lord? Aren't they, in fact, humiliating themselves? Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, I'm going to pour out my fierce anger on this place, on humans, beasts, on the fields, the trees of the field, and the crops of fertile land. It will burn and not go out. What is his anger here? What is it that burns and doesn't go out to the on the whole place? It's the Babylonians. So what what we're beginning to approach to and um just just really quickly on the next page. Jeremiah seven twenty nine, the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. I will smite the Chaldeans are coming to fight, and I will smite in my anger and my wrath. How does he smite? For I have hidden my face from the city. As my anger and my wrath are poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. How? Suffering the consequences of leaving God and going their own way. In Ezekiel 8.18, the terms my eye will not spare and I will not hear them belong to the general mix of metaphors that suggest God stepping back and allowing people to suffer the inevitable consequences of their choice. So, to pour out my indignation, blow upon you the fire of my wrath, equals I will deliver you into the hands of brutal men, skillful to destroy. And then Hosea has an interesting statement. God gave them what he wanted in anger. He gave them a king in his anger, and he took him away in his wrath, meaning they suffered the full consequences. He gave them what they wanted. That's what God does when he gets angry. And it's never good when he gives us what we want. So what we're beginning to do is approach what we will find in many other passages that anger becomes a kind of euphemistic word to describe what happens when God hides his face or lets people go or gives them what they want. It it actually becomes a a kind of a, a shorthand way of saying the Babylonians came, they destroyed our land, God was angry. Yeah. Okay, but like we're looking at that once because we have Romans, we have all these extra right. revelations. The, the, the people see it that way. Uh, yeah, exactly. <sighs> like, is it reasonable to suspect that they really did think that? Oh my gosh, this is God. His His hand is against us. You know, in an, uh, an arbitrary sense, maybe. I think a lot of the people, especially the people that worshipped other gods, did see God as directly doing it. And angry. That's the prevailing perception of the ancient Near East. God doesn't try to to tweak that and explain Himself more thoroughly to them, because what would have happened if He had? They wouldn't respect Him as much. They wouldn't respect Him as much. He wouldn't be. He would be a weak God compared to the gods they were worshiping. In fact, one of the contentions I have, and I have yet to prove this. <laughs> So this is a hypothetical statement, but it's an intuitive statement based on reading the ancient Near East and reading the Bible. My sense of things is that that God possibly was viewed as too weak and impotent, and that's why they did seek other gods. Huh. That if, you know, you go back to no, Rome, uh, to Numbers 12, where it says in verse... Uh, Four, I think it is. Now the man Moses was very meek, more so than all the other men on the earth. 
I mean, it sounds like Moses is boasting. Well, I don't think Moses wrote that. I think it was a later uh, insertion into the text. <laughs> but but I do think it's a statement about Moses' leadership. What does he do when the people are ready to stone him? He falls on his face. Hmm. Now, if Moses is God's representative, who's going to be seen as weak? God. And I think that that explains a lot of what's going on in the Old Testament, that we're dealing with a, a people who who really cannot discern, they, they, they cannot discern love. They cannot discern how important love is. Keep in mind, there is one word in Hebrew for love, but it's so fraught with legal paraphernalia in terms of ancient Near Eastern understanding of relationships. Human relationships were pretty much built on appeasement forms of appeasement you know i i do i curry your favor i make a covenant with you a legal covenant binding enforced by oaths uh, so that the gods will punish you if you break my covenant with you you, you see that's that's every relationship practically in ancient Near East is governed by that kind of thinking and so how is god to relate to these people to to help them understand his love when they don't even have a good term for it. The closest you get to it is the term kesed. Kesed in Hebrew has, has variously been defined as loving kindness, uh, as loyal to covenant loyalty, as uh, mercy, kind, uh, steadfast love, all those things. You see that in the translations. And there is not a good single definition for it because it seems to change from perspective to perspective. But I have come to conclude that Kesed is going beyond the expected, the legally acceptable, the legally required thing, and, and going beyond that and showing kindness beyond that. So it's it's what it's outside the box, the legal box. It's not just doing within the confines of the covenant. It's going beyond that covenant to exercise mercy, to exercise kindness, to exercise a loyalty when you've been disloyal. You broke the covenant, but I'm still going to uphold it. You see, that's Kesed. So I, I think God is, is struggling to break them out of the box of, of a legal, of completely legal constructs for relationships and, and try to show them love as it really is. So, that, yeah, you're going to see from the, from the human perspective, God's ticked off, enraged, and punishing directly. They see the Babylonians coming as an act of God, mm-hmm. you see. Okay. But the, the whole point of Jesus coming, in a sense, was to take the Old Testament and redress it, reestablish what it really means. If that's the way that they were seeing it, it makes sense why it's written that way yes. in the Old Testament. Yes. That's why we do have to look at, at the people and, and their thinking and their understanding in order to really understand the Old Testament. So let's bow our heads. Father, thank you that even in the Old Testament we can see the glimpses of your kindness, the glimpses of who you really are that we see so clearly in Jesus and in Paul in the New Testament. Pray that we may take these glimpses with us as we move on in terms of seeing your anger. May this become clear as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen.
Jesus name amen 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 Jesus name am